This ABA Journal podcast is brought to you by Westlaw Next, the legal research platform chosen by over 40,000 legal organizations for the tradition of editorial excellence combined with the most advanced technology. Learn more at westlawnext.com. About 1,000 people apply for clerkships with the U.S. Supreme Court each year, and most, if not all, have stellar academic pedigrees. What separates the 36 who make the cut? I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and that's what we're discussing today at the ABA Journal Podcast. Joining me are Hannah Stotland, an Associate Director of the Center for Career Strategy and Advancement at Northwestern University School of Law, where she specializes in judicial clerkship advising, and Jay Wexler, a constitutional law professor and author at Boston University School of Law, who clerked for Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. First question for the two of you, and Hannah, why don't you take this first? Mm-hmm. If you could give one primary tip to applicants when they're applying for U.S. Supreme Court clerkships, what would it be? Talk to knowledgeable people and take their advice, because this is a process where you can have a pretty good idea before you begin of what your chances are, and there are people out there who are happy to help you at your law school. So uh, take advantage of that advice, and uh, you need to have your law school behind you to have a, sh- have a shot anyway. So that's my advice. Well, I'm curious, given that that's your advice, are there some people who think, well, I'll just go do this on my own? I wouldn't say they go do it on their own because they, they should at least know that they'll need letters of recommendation. Uh-huh. But I think uh, there aren't a 1,000 reasonable candidates each year. I think a lot of those candidates are not going to be considered very strongly. I'd be surprised if there's more than two or 300 students who are really in the running nationally, maybe fewer than that. And so um, I think you can can save yourself a lot of trouble and headaches if you seriously take the advice that you're given. What does it mean? Can you give me an example of like what would be in the running? Well, it depends on the law school. This is a, a very hierarchical profession. Uh, you know, I'm sure that listeners are familiar with that. And this is perhaps the snobbiest, if you will, job in the profession. And uh, where you went to law school is enormously important. And a majority of clerks uh, went to a small handful of law schools, you know, uh, four or five law schools. And so for that reason, I think candidates really need to be realistic about what achievements are necessary at their law school in order to be in the running. Okay. And is there a way, if someone wants to do this, and you think that they probably wouldn't be in the running, I mean, how how do you let them down gently? Well, that's part of the challenge of being a counselor. Um, You know, I, I encourage students to aim high, but not to waste their time. And so, you know, I think there's, there's a line between this is a reach and this is impossible. I myself did not apply because I believed it was impossible for, for me, and I went to Harvard Law, and I clerked on the Seventh Circuit. But realistically, I knew what was expected of those candidates, and I thought it wasn't a good use of my recommender's time to apply. Okay. Now, Jay, where you did make the cut, I'm betting that students probably come to you for advice when they apply. What are some of the things you tell them? My knowledge of, of the whole process is a little old because I, I clerked a number of years ago, and I don't get a lot of students who ask me advice on clerking for the Supreme Court. I don't know how many people have even applied from uh, Boston University where I teach. A, a few, but I don't think we, if we've ever had a, a clerk, I, it hasn't been since I've been teaching here. So it's not part of my ongoing kind of advising policy. But what I would tell them is I would tell them the same thing that I tell people who are applying for lower federal court clerkships, which is 
to try to take classes and get to know professors who might be good recommenders, who might know the judges, who will be willing to comment in detail on your writing, uh, who will be willing to kind of go to bat for you with the justice or judge uh, by giving them a call or writing just a superb letter. And I would tell them that they have to start writing papers, um, that you have to get into small classes that are like seminar classes, write papers, let the professor know how well you write and what the quality of your ideas are so that he or she can really comment on something unique when they write the letter to the judge or justice. Do you have a sense, Jay, of how long it would take a professor to write a letter of recommendation for someone? I know Hannah mentioned you, you kind of want to be mindful that you don't waste the professor's time. How much of a job is it? We get really good at it. At least I have. Uh, I think uh, it probably differs on the professor, but you know, it's part of our job. I think everybody who I teach with realizes and recognizes that it's part of their job to write recommendations for students, particularly in the economy uh, today. And we've written many, many of them. So it's not like we have to think about uh, what is, goes into a letter of recommendation, you know, and think about it anew every time. So we know how to write letters. So it's really not that hard, honestly. You know, you, you as a student want to send a resume and I always ask a student, even if I haven't had them in a seminar class, to send me some paper that they've written so I can look at that and I can make a comment on that. And it's really not that hard, honestly. Now I'm going to get 500 emails tomorrow, you know, uh, asking me for recommendations. <laughs> well, and and the, letter, the letter itself doesn't necessarily look that different depending on what judge or court you're applying to. So if you're going to make it to the Supreme Court, chances are that you have letters from your professor saying, you know, this is, this is one of the outstanding members of this class or perhaps one of the top students I've taught in my 30 years as a professor, that, that sort of thing. And that letter has multiple uses, and certainly any judge in the country is going to respect that letter. It doesn't have to be uh, Supreme Court specific, although for many successful candidates, uh, you may have a professor who's, who's recommended many successful clerks in the past and perhaps can address a particular justice and say, this clerk is similar to Joe Smith, whom I recommended and who worked for you 10 years ago, and here are the qualities that she shares with that individual uh, who served, well, served you well as a clerk in the past. Okay. And I just want to tag on what you just said about they could say this is one of the, the top students mm -hmm. I've worked with in my entire career. Mm -hmm. Is that something that would be a separator, you think? Um, certainly. And, and it's something that would be almost required at the majority of American law schools. You have, you know, a small handful of, of schools that place multiple clerks on the court every year. And everyone outside that pool the competition is yet more fierce, and at least somebody at your law school, chances are if you're, let's say, some, you're, you know, you're in the top tier but not in the top ten or top five schools that place Supreme Court clerks, if you are trying to become the first Supreme Court clerk from your law school, I would expect not only professors but probably the dean of the school to be in touch with the justices saying, this, this is the greatest one we've ever had. This is why she should be the first Supreme Court clerk from this school. But I would imagine at the same time, from the professor's point of view, you have to be careful with that term because if oh, every year they're going to be a, oh, absolutely. Wait a minute. Absolutely. I put that in every letter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hannah, another question for you. 
if someone just really wants to clerk on the Supreme Court, generally do you encourage them to apply with all the justices? Yes, that's the etiquette. I'm not sure how long that's been in place, but certainly since I was a law student a little over 10 years ago, there was a presumption that a Supreme Court candidate applies to all justices. Realistically, is, is someone going to be an equally strong candidate in every chamber? Probably not. But that is kind of the cultural expectation for what uh, smart candidates do. And why do you say that they won't be this, as strong in every chamber? Well, there's a couple of related issues there. One is what I would call politics, what others might call uh, philosophy. There's an obvious political or philosophical divide on the Supreme Court, and some justices feel more strongly than others about taking that into consideration. And some justices may want to have a mix of points of view in their chambers, or they may want to have a lot of their own philosophical allies in their chambers. Even if the, the justice isn't thinking solely about the philosophical mix in chambers, the pathways, if you will, the particular professors and what we call feeder judges, members of the Federal Court of Appeals whose clerk alumni go on to clerk on the Supreme Court, those feeder judges have relationships with particular chambers. Okay. And, Jay, from your experience on the court, and you said it was a while ago, but nevertheless, what are the justices really looking for, do you think, with their clerks? I think that, well, that depends on the justice, but okay. certainly somebody who they can rely on to analyze the case and get them ready for the oral argument in the case, and somebody who they can trust to carry out their wishes when working on opinions. Obviously, somebody who's able to talk about ideas related to the cases with the justice, somebody they feel comfortable with to the extent that they can determine that in the interview. So they're looking for somebody who's very legally talented, but also quite willing to carry out the wishes of their boss. Carry out their wishes. Can you expand on that for me? Well, you know, it's, it's uh, people in other professions look at the clerkships in the legal profession and think it's kind of strange that people a year, two years these days, maybe three or four or whatever years out of law school have these positions working for federal judges in the Supreme Court. Uh, and why, you know, why should somebody with such little experience have such a, a, a big responsibility? And, and the, the reason is because at that point in one's career, you're willing to, you know, you haven't developed your own kind of strong feelings and uh, about what, what you want to do, and you're willing to basically be, you know, at the whim of your boss. And that's what you have to do as a clerk. So, you know, if people who, who've come to clerking after working out uh, and, you know, having their own practice and spending 10 years at a law firm or whatever uh, tend not to work out very well because they have their own views, they're headstrong, they're used to doing their own stuff, and they can't kind of do only what the justice wants and, and follow his or her directions, you know, completely. And, that, and that's mm -hmm. what the justice needs. Mm-hmm. And from your experience, going back to the recommendation issue, what it sounds like to me is that it certainly helps if the person making the candidate's recommendation has a connection to the justice. Would you agree with that? I think that's absolutely true. I mean, in my own case, you know, I happen to have first-year constitutional law with the, the professor who was also Justice Ginsburg's constitutional law professor. So that, that? that helped, you know. <laughs> uh, what was that? My, who was that professor? Gerald, Jerry Gunther, who's uh, oh, okay. passed yeah. away. But he sent a, a number of clerks to Justice Ginsburg, and I also had another recommender who helped prepare her for, uh, Kathleen Sullivan, who helped prepare Justice Ginsburg for her confirmation 
hearing, and I and totally randomly, um, I had another professor who I was a research assistant for, whose college roommate at Cornell was Marty Ginsburg, and so knew her. So I, you know, I, I got really lucky. And I, and and to answer your question, I think yeah, it's very 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 helpful to have a professor or 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 to have worked for a judge who is close to a justice and who the justice can rely on to to, to recommend people that the justice is going to. Uh, you know, have a successful relationship with. Hannah, would you like to add to that? Uh, I, I agree with everything that's been said. It's it's critical to have those relationships. You know, that every judge with a clerk is really relying on that clerk. They're sort of the external hard drives for the judge's mind. And it's more more work and more responsibility than one mind can handle, and that's why, uh, that's why a chambers has multiple attorneys in it. But... As Jay said, they they need to be subservient in a sense, you know, uh, to the the senior senior attorney in the chambers, and that level of trust is really enhanced if someone that you've known for 30 years says, "Ruth, I I know this kid. He's going to do right by you." And when it's this competitive, you really you have to have that. Okay. And speaking of it being very competitive, Hannah, do you think it's possible for someone's family or friend connections to get them an interview with a justice? Um, perhaps. I don't know of any interviews that have taken place with people who were not already, let's say, in the running numerically. But I am sure that of the qualified candidates, uh, things like somebody's college roommate, as Jay was saying, um, Mm-hmm. You know, the more sources of trust and information that that justice has, the more likely they are to take a look at that candidate. Do you ever see situations where an applicant might use a very respected Supreme mm-hmm. Court advocate as a recommendation? Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think that's more common if someone perhaps has been working in D.C. for a couple of years and has been an associate with that advocate. And I guess there's a trend now of the justices hiring Bristow Fellows who are uh, highly accomplished uh, young law school graduates who work in the office of the Solicitor General who is the Supreme Court advocate for the U.S. government. And so uh, indirectly, I imagine that those, those Bristow Fellows in their successful applications are relying on a recommendation, I, I suspect, from their supervisor in the SG's office. Okay. And is it possible to get a Supreme Court clerkship if you go to a second-tier school? It has been done. Okay. Um, it, and it depends on the justice. Uh, justice Thomas has been a leader in this area as far as hiring uh, students who were the best graduate ever from a law school that hasn't, hasn't placed a clerk before. I've been focusing on this because we have a very strong candidate from Northwestern who uh, transferred to Northwestern from George Mason University. Oh, and okay. George Mason did place a clerk with Justice Thomas a few years back who had uh, clerked on the Fifth Circuit prior to his time with the court. And so I'm hopeful uh, that that perhaps this student who has George Mason on his resume, although he's a Northwestern grad, can maybe follow in those footsteps to Justice Thomas. And is Thomas the only justice you have seen do that so far? Uh, You know, I'd have to look at the list. As far as law schools out of of Tier 1, I think think he's the only one. Jay, do you know of any... I have a feeling that there there may have been a couple here and there, but I don't know for sure. Okay. 
let's go to Jay. Besides academic achievement, what other factors do you think might help a candidate get a Supreme Court clerkship interview? Besides academic achievement, um, well, we've we've covered the connection thing. I I think, perhaps I should say in addition to academic achievement. Right. Uh, well, as Hannah was saying, from what I understand, and what she said is, is consistent with what I've understood, is that there more and more you get people who are not not coming directly from an appellate clerkship who are doing something else. The Bristol Fellowship uh, makes a lot of sense, and I think we also, when I worked at Office of Legal Counsel, which is also in the Justice Department, we had uh, one or two people go from, from that job to the Supreme Court. So, you know, having a little bit of very high-level experience probably helps some candidates. I'm wondering whether things like getting a Ph.D. help. My guess is probably not. What else might there be? Uh, I don't well, I, I think I think some justices take people skills into consideration. Although what people skills they're looking for in a, in a particular case will change. They they want someone who is not going to create drama in chambers and so on. Thing is, it, the the um, people with uh, personality problems are likely to have. Uh, it, it's it's harder to build that perfect record in law school if you're making people angry. That's um, true. So, so it happens. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, in in terms in terms of you know having those glowing, loving, tear-stained recommendation letters from elite professors, um, you know if 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 that professor has the idea that you're kind of a pompous jerk, that's an impediment. The justices definitely want someone who's going to work in harmony with the other staff in chambers, but because each chambers is unique, a personality that fits in one chambers may not fit in another. Well, I'm curious, do you think that maybe there's some sort of code in a professor's recommendation letter that the candidate might be a bit of a pompous jerk at times? Um, I've seen I've seen letters with torpedoes in them. What would a torpedo be? Um, I'm trying to think of a of a good example. You know, if, if for example, this this is some someone who probably wouldn't be a Supreme Court candidate, but I've seen a letter that noted that this the student was very bright but often came to class unprepared. Oh my! That's, that's that's the worst torpedo I've ever seen. Yeah, I think I think in that case the professor should say I, I don't really feel comfortable writing the letter. Yes, and I, I, after I saw that I called the professor and said I wonder if you're interested in with, in withdrawing and maybe telling the student that they should find another. Because uh-huh. obviously I can't tell the student what's in the letter, but I can I can call the professor and say maybe you're not the right recommender for the student. <laughs> um, Jay, what do you think about that in terms of torpedoes or? Well, I've heard that. Letter. I've heard that too. Um, I wouldn't do it. I don't think, uh, you know, unless it was unconscious. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, when it gets to that level, to the Supreme Court level, and there really only are a certain set of students that you can really truthfully recommend to the justices, I imagine it's kind of a more difficult, tricky situation. But I really haven't faced it myself, so I don't know what I would do or how I would handle it, but um, but I'm sure at, at Yale and Harvard, uh, they they have to struggle with this. Again, when, when there are these personal relationships, this may happen by a phone call rather than in a letter. And in a, in a phone call, the professor might say, you know, Bruce, here's the story with this guy, and maybe compare them to a third party that both the professor and the justice know and say, you know, it's brilliant, but i got to give you a heads up about this. 
and that that's likely something that would that would happen in a phone call. And I want to go back to something both of you mentioned. You were talking about other experiences, like perhaps a PhD or something like that, or time with the SGs or the Bristol Fellowship, rather. I know law schools, it seems like it's a pretty common now. They want someone with a little bit of real-life experience before they come in. Are you seeing that the court favors that as well? You're saying that law schools favor that in applicants? Yes. Uh-huh. Does the court favor that as, as well, do you think, as opposed to someone who just goes straight through? Uh, when I was there, it was sort of it was starting to turn a little bit where where experience was being valued more than before, and I. But Hannah would be able to speak to that. Uh, yeah, that, that seems that seems to be a trend in federal clerkships in general, and that there are more people who are spending a couple of years out of law school, either at a firm, um, in a fellowship, et cetera, before they clerk sometimes because they applied for clerkships as a 3L and there was a disappointing result, and so they, they come back and give it another shot. And I think that that trend has reached the Supreme Court um, in terms of, the, you know, the Supreme Court is in the habit of hiring candidates who are currently in particular highly thought of uh, a federal appellate clerkship, and they're hired for the term after that. Well, that, that group that's in the elite federal appellate clerkships now includes more what, what we would call alumni applicants, folks who had a couple of years of post-law school work experience before the clerkship. And we're also seeing a, a trend toward students who have done more than one clerkship prior to applying to and, and getting a position on the Supreme Court, uh, sometimes with two different federal circuits, sometimes with a district court and, and then a circuit court. Okay. Let's move on to the interviews. A question for both of you. I mean, given the candidate's academic strengths, do you think it's the interview that really, really makes the cut for the candidates to get the job? I'm sure that's going to differ based on the justice. Justice Ginsburg is the only one I really know about. Interviewed very few candidates. And my interview... I got the job, of course, but um, I, 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 there was, I, I spent about five minutes in the interview talking about a case that I thought she was asking me about, but it turned out it was another, a different case with a similar name, and that I was talking about the wrong case for about five minutes, and I still got the job. So I don't, I don't know what that <laughs> says about the process. How did you, well, how did you prepare for the interview? I know what I have heard about Justice Ginsburg is that when you speak with her, be prepared for long pauses in the conversation. Yes, that's because she's thinking. Yeah, and 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 you you want to not interrupt the pause too soon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is very. It's tricky. It's a, yeah, I mean, that's kind of what everyone says about Justice Ginsburg in terms of speaking with her. But how did you prepare for your interview? You probably knew that going in, and you were ready for those pauses, right? Uh, yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, it's very hard to prepare for interviews with the judges. Um, I knew that she wasn't going to be asking me all sorts of it, – it wasn't going to be like a grilling session like some of the, mm-hmm. some of the other judges, judges and justices out there. So I don't know. I read I read dissents. I that I think the best thing to do to to, to prepare for a, a clerkship interview of any sort is to read the judge or justice who you're going to interview's dissents, and because then you get to see hear them speaking for themselves, you know, or or separate opinions. Maybe it's a concurrence. So I probably did that, and I, I think I remember trying to figure out who my favorite justice was because somebody told me that that they might somebody might ask me that. So. 
I tried to try to figure out who my favorite justice might be, but I can't. And it would be bad for him to say her. Uh, yeah, <laughs> or or one of her colleagues, one I of her see. junior colleagues. Justice <laughs> <laughs> um, Breyer is my favorite. Is what I, no. So, Hannah, are there some justices who are known for doing certain things during interviews? And can you tell us what some of those things are? Uh, yes. Well, as Jay suggested, some of the judges are going to give you a Socratic grilling on substantive legal issues. Uh, Justice Thomas does that. Uh, Justice Scalia does that. We had an interview uh, earlier this summer with Justice Kagan where, that was very substantive, not not particularly long or hostile, but obviously very very daunting for the, for the candidate. And you know, you might get a question like. So in the Jones v. Smith matter, can you tell me why I was right and Justice Scalia was wrong? I would have never gotten that job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I've heard of interviews with Justice Thomas in one case going about four hours. A, a very serious... A four-hour interview. Substantive, a, a, a four-hour sort of master class on constitutional law. I guess he must talk more in interviews than he does on the bench. <laughs> yes, I think that's fair to say. So I've never met him in person. All the reports I've gotten, we have a couple of his, his alumni on staff here at Northwestern that, that he's uh, uh, very sweet to his clerks and, and kind of a marshmallow and, and um, delightful to work for. Mm-hmm. He was very uh-huh. much uh, sort of the most um, normal of the justices. Like you just sort of talk to him mm-hmm. without feeling kind of... Um, Intimidated. He was very nice, uh, friendly. Person. Final question for the two of you: In the process of applying and getting the U.S. Supreme Court clerkship, what do you think is most misunderstood by the candidates? Luck plays a role. It really does. Or fate, however, however you want to look at it. The stars have to align. Even for the Harvard and Yale candidates, most folks, I think, who who make it, everything went right. And there's, even if it's informal, a sort of committee of support behind each successful candidate. And I I think the the ones who don't make it, some of that is luck and chance, and some of it is uh, a weakness in their informal committee. Not enough people that the justice trusts and respects pushing them hard enough. I, I was going to say I don't. I think that pe- people who are applying for these clerkships have a sense that they're applying to work just for the justice that they're uh, applying to. When you really are working for the court as a whole, and at least when I was there, and I think still, the clerks spend at least a third of their time, maybe more, working on the cert process, which is a process for the court as a whole, uh, and not the individual justice. Whether I don't, I'm not sure that plays out into any application advice or anything like that. But it's 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 something that I'm not sure people understand when they apply. Okay, that's everything I have for today. I want to thank you both so much for your time. This ABA Journal podcast is brought to you by Westlaw Next. Conduct legal research from any device, anytime, anywhere, even offline with the award-winning Westlaw Next iPad app. Learn more at westlawnext.com.